Luke chapter 12, from verse 49 down to verse 59, this is what God's word says. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Holy Spirit, help us to hear with the ears of faith. Help us to see the glory of Christ in his gospel. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the end of chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, and here Jesus gives a series of pointed words concerning, as you've seen, division and unbelief and something about standing before a judge. And at first glance, this may seem like a jumbled motley of different sayings, but actually, if we consider the context of what Jesus has been previously talking about, it makes perfect sense, and there's a clear cohesiveness to all of these words. Because as we've mentioned numerous times over the past several weeks, all throughout chapter 12, Jesus has been bringing our minds to consider the end of all things. And the discussion reached a climax in the passage just before the one we read in verses uh, 35 to 48, which we saw the last couple Sundays, as Jesus there spoke about his return, how one day he will come back to earth at an unexpected time. And when he returns, it will all be Over And everyone will stand before him and give an account of the life they lived, whether they were faithful stewards of all that was entrusted to them or whether they were unfaithful and rebellious, living for themselves. And so coming off the heels of this thought of the final judgment day, Jesus now punctuates his words by effectively saying this. Listen, everyone, because... These things are true. Let me make it real simple and clear. Let me tell you the ultimatum. All that's going to matter in the end is this. Are you a part of God's people or are you not? Do you belong to him by a real living faith or do you refuse him? 
You see, Jesus is setting forth here the ultimate dividing line. All of humanity, every human being, stands on either side of this line. And the line is a very simple black and white question. Are you right with God, having been forgiven of your sins? Or do you still remain in your sins? Nothing else will matter in the end. It won't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Your ethnicity, your nationality, your upbringing, it means nothing. It won't matter whether you are rich or poor, young or old, educated or uneducated, popular or unpopular, successful in your career or struggling to find a job. None of that is going to matter in the end. But the only point of identification that will mean anything is simply, are you individually, personally, as a unique human being before God, are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? This is the dividing line that Jesus is drawing here with crystal clarity. And notice how he begins in verse 49. It says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now right out of the gate, Jesus uses this very intense metaphor to describe what he has come to do. And immediately, we get the impression that Jesus is talking about bringing judgment and wrath, the flames of divine retribution. And no doubt, Scripture often uses fire as symbolic of God's righteous judgment upon sinners. But remember that in John 3.17, it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is to say, Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago only or even mainly to bring judgment, though he will consummate his judgment at his second coming, but rather he came 2,000 years ago at his first coming to bring deliverance from judgment. And so if that's the case... What do we make of here Jesus saying that he came to cast fire? Well, as with many biblical metaphors, we have to understand that that there are various nuances that they convey depending on the context. For example, leaven is often used to describe the nature of sin and how it spreads quietly and unknowingly like yeast. But not always, as we'll see later, if you just take a glance at chapter 13 of Luke's gospel in verse 21, leaven is also used sometimes to describe how God's kingdom spreads in a very similar fashion. And so the context is important. And so in the same way, fire is often used to depict God's all-consuming wrath and judgment on sinners. There's no escaping this fire, and all the unrighteous will be engulfed by the flames. But there's another sense in which Fire is also used to describe not just punishment, but purification. Whereby God rescues and preserves a remnant out of this polluted world of sin. Malachi chapter 3, this is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And you know, he was prophesying of the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 3, 2-4 says, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Just as Jesus said, I've come to cast fire. That's his coming. But it says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness 
to the Lord. And again, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25. God says, I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross. Speaking of the city of Jerusalem. And I will remove all your alloy. So there's an aspect of punishment, of purging. But afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You see, this fire that Jesus has come to cast is a purifying fire that saves a remnant The sinners who turn to him by faith, by cleansing them of their unrighteousness and making them a people, a city of righteousness. And as such, it is also a purging fire that, here now, separates the righteous from the unrighteous. It is God gathering a people out of the impure world, rescuing them unto himself. And this is exactly what John the Baptist was talking about earlier in chapter 3 in Luke's gospel. He said in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is this fire? Well, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the Messiah is coming, John announced, to separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff he will burn up, but the wheat he will gather. And so this fire that Jesus came to cast, it is a fire that divides humanity into two groups. Those who insist on remaining impure in their sin, and those who repent of their sin and turn to him for cleansing and forgiveness. And we see here in verse 49 that Jesus was not only announcing that he came to ignite this fire, but that he was hasty and incredibly eager, if you will, for it to be ignited. It says in verse 49, Would that it were already kindled. How I wish the fire were kindled already. There was a holy impatience with how Jesus felt about it. Why? Because this fire would be ignited at the cross. Jesus was hasty for the cross, not because it was something to look forward to with happy-go-lucky excitement, but because it was something that he dreaded. In the totality of his human nature, he, he was wishing for it to be over already. And so he says in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this first might sound a little strange at first. Uh, Why does Jesus mention baptism all of a sudden? What is he talking about? Didn't we already see his baptism earlier in Luke chapter 3 at the Jordan River? Yes, but that was symbolic and preparatory so as to inaugurate his ministry as the messiah being anointed by the spirit but the true and ultimate baptism that jesus came to undergo was at the culmination of his ministry as the messiah in the baptism that awaited him at calvary on the cross you see baptism is not some novel new testament concept that came out of nowhere But the idea of baptism was a recurring pattern 
that God revealed all throughout redemptive history. Because the word baptize means, the, the word literally means to immerse or to be plunged under, namely some body of water. And although as Christians we associate the idea of baptism being immersed underwater as a positive thing, and rightly so, we have to understand that the original concept of baptism is actually rooted in sinners being immersed under the outpouring of divine judgment, being plunged under the rushing tide of God's wrath. In other words, Immersion underwater, baptism underwater, it signified punishment for sin. Hence, we see passages like Isaiah chapter 30, verses 27 to 28, that the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. And in Jeremiah 25, God's judgment is described as the cup of, of divine wrath, which will be poured out on the nations. And in that sense, the nations will be baptized by God's judgment. But it's not only that God described his wrath with this metaphor, but remember, God actually executed his wrath in this manner back in Genesis chapter 9, when he flooded the world in judgment. You see, in this sense, God baptized the world, as it were. It was the outpouring of his wrath against sin. And so by itself, okay, in its origin, the biblical pattern of baptism or immersion is bad news for sinners because it is God plunging sinners under the flood of holy judgment. No one can bear it. Everyone will drown under this infinite tide of condemnation. But what did God reveal even back then in Genesis during the time of Noah? Despite his prerogative and right to punish all sinners without exception, God had made a way for sinners to escape the judgment, to be able to endure it by providing a refuge a shelter for them to hide in, namely the ark that God told Noah to build. And for all who believed God's word of promise, which sadly was only Noah's family, they entered into the ark, and when the judgment was unleashed, water was poured out from heaven above and sprung from the earth below and submerged the entire world, And every unbeliever drowned and perished, but Noah's family, who believed and who acted in accordance with their belief, they entered the ark and they were safe inside it because it was the ark that was plunged and baptized under the outpouring of divine wrath. And God decreed that ark would be sufficient to withstand the full outpouring of wrath and keep everyone inside dry and unscathed, allowing them to pass through the waters of judgment safely. You see, the Ark of Noah 
was the good news of God's promise and provision to deliver sinners from the wrath to come. It was the gospel prevealed, as I like to call it. It was the gospel prevealed in its nascent pictorial form. And it was all a picture of what Christ would come to do to the uttermost, what Christ came to be, namely our heavenly ark, our eternally sufficient refuge. Because Jesus came to be plunged and baptized under the full outpouring of God's wrath against sin so that sinners who confess their sin and hide themselves in him by faith would be able to pass through judgment and not perish. You know, this is why if you read the New Testament very carefully, you might notice some interesting language to describe saving faith. For instance, Paul writes in Romans 6, 3, that we as believers have been baptized into Christ. That's a strange preposition. That's not normal grammar. What does that even mean, that, that we've been immersed, inducted into Christ? Why would Paul describe it this way? Because it's the language of entrance. Entering into Christ by faith. Inasmuch as Noah and his family entered into the ark by faith. And it's for the same reason that the New Testament terminology for Christians who have been born again, saved, forgiven, redeemed, The New Testament terminology for Christians is not the word Christian. The word Christian appears in the New Testament only three times. Twice in Acts and once in 1 Peter. And and it probably originated as a derogatory term. It's what the outsiders call the believers. They say, oh, those Christians. And eventually it became the term that we use today because the the believers, they, they, they loved it. They said, yeah, scorn us, that's okay. We love Christ. It's, a, it's an honor to bear his name. But the New Testament's terminology for Christians is not the word Christian primarily. It's the term in Christ. Read Paul's letters and you will see the words in Christ practically every other sentence. The early church didn't say, hey, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian too? They said, hey, I'm in Christ. Are you in Christ too? Or or, or are you outside of Christ? Do you see why they talk like this? In these spatial terms. It's because they were declaring, I have entered by faith into Christ. And now I stand and I live in Christ. Inside Christ, if you will. I am safe in Him. I am secure in Him. I am at peace In Him, I am at rest in Him because I have hidden myself in Him. In the early church, they understood the theology of baptism. That the salvation Jesus came to bring was calling sinners to come and find refuge in Him. And that for all who enter into Him by faith, that He would bear the baptism of the outpouring of wrath for them. And that every drop of the cup of divine wrath, Jesus came to drink dry so that not a drop would fall on those who are found in Him. 
But you see, church, this is precisely why Jesus was so distressed, tormented about the baptism that awaited him at the cross. He knew what would happen on the cross. It tormented him day and night as he took each day one step closer, having set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was more than just the physical torture, as unspeakably gruesome as it was. But it was the flood of God's wrath that he would put himself to drown under on behalf of those he came to save. Do you ever wonder what might have been on Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross, as he was suffering unto death? Uh, If we could have had an audio recording of his thoughts during the darkest hours of Calvary, what would we have heard? Well, in a sense, we don't have to wonder too much because it was transcribed for us. We have a transcript of those thoughts. Not because someone 2,000 years ago on that day at the crucifixion read his mind and wrote them down then and there, but because the mind of God was prophetically revealed by the Spirit of God about a thousand years before the cross as the Holy Spirit inspired King David to pen such words in the Psalms. And for instance, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69, Psalm 69 is one of the most apparent messianic psalms in that it prophesies of the Messiah. Now, I would argue that all the psalms in some respect are messianic, but that's beside the point right now. But the way to understand Psalm 69 is this. Although King David was the original author of this psalm, And although he was in this psalm describing his own experience of suffering, because we talked about this morning in 1 Samuel of how David had to live a life of intense suffering as a fugitive, fleeing from Saul who tried to kill him because Saul was crazy. But although in this psalm, David was describing his own experience of, of suffering and agony in these poetic and hyperbolic terms. He was also writing all of this under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, who was guiding David's life to serve as a foreshadow and a living prophecy of the Christ to come. And this is why, again, David experienced so much suffering in his life. It was all ordained by God such that David's life would point to the ultimate David, the ultimate king of Israel, who would be the suffering savior, who would fulfill even these hyperbolic words to the uttermost. Hence, we see in verse 21, you probably recognize this verse in some form. In verse 21 of Psalm 69, there David speaks, it's David, okay? It's David speaking of his own agony in poetic language, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, no one really gave David sour wine, But there David was expressing how he felt so abandoned and so hated 
so as to say, it feels as if I was dying of thirst, but no one gave me an ounce of sympathy. Instead, while I was down, they were kicking me. I was given only the scorn and mockery of rotten wine for my thirst, as it were. But remember, it was on the cross that Jesus actually fulfilled this psalm to its ultimate realization as the Roman soldiers literally gave him who was dying sour wine to drink. Our Lord was utterly deprived and forsaken, just as David experienced in his life as a righteous sufferer, but only as a shadow in comparison. And so what this shows us is that the language and the heartbeat of the entirety of Psalm 69 is effectively a prophetic transcript of Jesus' mind during the climax of his suffering. Because the words of this psalm is the word of God from the mind of God breathed out by the Spirit of God. And so then coming back to the original question, what must Jesus have been thinking on the cross as he was experiencing the wrath of God? Of God. It's there. Verse 1. This is what was on Jesus' mind. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Listen to that desperation, that sheer dread and despair, this unspeakable anguish of feeling deserted and hopeless. This is the prayer of our Savior as he was being baptized, drowning under the flood of God's wrath, gasping for any molecule of spiritual air, as it were. And so we also see Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I cry out, but I find no rest. There was no rest, no peace for the Prince of Peace himself as he hung on the cross. Because he came to bear the judgment of sin for all who are in him by faith. And to be a shield of refuge for them that they might have eternal rest and peace. Beloved, this is the gospel of Jesus' dreaded baptism. Him plunging himself under the wrath of God meant for us. If you are in Christ, this is what He has done for you. This is what it means to be in Christ. The blessing and joy of salvation in Him. You see, this is a clear dividing line. Very simply, are you here today? Are you in Christ? Or are you outside of Christ? That's the only question that matters. Where do you stand? There's no other boundary or association that matters. This dividing line transcends everything 
And so Jesus says in verse 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one household there will be divided five, three against two, two against three. And it will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, in all sorts of different ways. See, Jesus is not talking about being a divisive, contentious person. He's not saying, I've come to make people become belligerent and hostile against family members. But he's saying, I've come to take a people unto myself. And that will inevitably result in belligerence and hostility from those around them. And this separation is so transcendent and so eternally consequential that it divides even the closest bonds of earth, even family. It slices through earthly bonds in all kinds of ways. Three against two, two against three. Between parent and child, between siblings, doesn't matter. Now some of you guys can testify to this experience. I mean, it's sad, but the reality is that you find more joy and love and commonality and peace with the brothers and sisters in Christ next to you than even with your own parents who raised you because they're not in Christ. Or even with your spouse if they're not in Christ. Or your own kids, your best friends. And perhaps to this day, you have to constantly endure the friction of competing worldviews, opposing values, things that your loved ones just can't fathom why you would live and think the way you do. And there's a tension that you have to live through in your relationship with them. You always find yourself having to explain why, having to defend why. And in that sense, there's no true sense of peace and understanding. And if that's you, then it's been discouraging. At least let Jesus' words assure you this is exactly what he promised and what he came to do. He came to bring this kind of division, not for the sake of divisiveness, but to enact so glorious a rescue by snatching you out of this world that it just results in this separation because you've been separated unto him. And to let any hardships with your unbelieving loved ones serve rather as the seal of your salvation the Spirit of God confirming to you just how much you belong to Christ, how much you are His. Because Jesus promised that such division would inevitably be forged, even cutting through the tightest familial bonds on earth. All this to say, Jesus is making the point here. Where you stand in relation to me is more important than anything else in life and where you stand in relation to anybody else. And so again, where do you stand today? Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? And to underscore the urgency of this matter, Jesus shifts his attention beginning in verse 54 to address the unbelieving, those who are still remaining in their unbelief. Verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. Jesus is telling here the unbelieving crowds, he's telling them, 
Y'all know how to read the weather, don't you? I see you, you know, you're capable of that. When you see cloud rising in the west, you, you, you've learned to recognize that this means that moisture is coming from the Mediterranean Sea, which was to the west of them. And then you go, ah, this tells me that a rainstorm is on its way. And when you feel wind coming from the south, you go like this, eh, oh, that's coming from the south. And you know how to make the observation that the south wind is coming from the desert below. And it will carry the scorching heat of the desert up to the north where you are. And so you know it's going to be a hot day. Good job. You know how to read signs. See, clearly you're capable of putting two and two together. God has given you a rational mind that is to be able to make logical inferences. You know how to connect the dots. You know how to read the signs of meteorology. And if that's the case, why then do you fail to read the sign of the present time? The sign of the Christ who has come for sinners and all that he is doing before your eyes. All the supernatural miracles that Jesus performed. The display of divine power and authority. And even today, we have even greater signs. We have today the ultimate and final sign. The irrefutable eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection. He is risen. That is God's final word. And, and, and not only that, on top of that, we, have, we witness the power of God's Spirit to continue to save sinners. Sinners who once rebelled against Him, but now suddenly their hearts are transformed and they bow down to Him. And for all the non-Christians in this room, I gather you're a person with intellect and ability to reason. God made you that way. Then why is it that suddenly when it comes to God and the clear truth He has revealed through His Son, you refuse to make the logical inference? Why do you pretend to be ignorant? Why do you pretend to be incapable of logic? And that's why here Jesus calls them hypocrites. Because hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you're not. That is to say, why are you pretending like all of a sudden... None of this makes sense and it's not believable when deep down you know it is all true. You know that you are guilty before God. Your conscience bears witness that you are a sinner. You know that the gospel of God's salvation is your only hope as a sinner. You know that it's impossible that Jesus was just a good teacher, that he was just a good moral example. It's impossible that his death on the cross was just... One big misunderstanding. It's impossible that he didn't rise from the dead. That's nonsense. You, you, you know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ who has died for sin, rose from the dead with power and authority to prove once for all that he's the son of God so that he would dispel any doubt about it. I mean, how else do you explain Faithless cowards like Peter, James, and John and all the disciples who abandoned Jesus at his finest hour before the cross because they were afraid for their lives. But upon witnessing the risen Jesus with their own eyes, they spent the rest of their lives being willing to be persecuted, maimed, tortured, beheaded unto death in order to testify that Jesus is the Messiah, risen. The same people who publicly deny the truth, preserve their own life before. How does that change happen? 
I mean, what, what do you think I'm doing here on this pulpit? You think I'm here because I couldn't find a job anywhere else? You think this is me, this is my religious hobby? Do you think I'm just mentally insane to, to make this my life's ambition? To preach what you think is a myth? A man-made story? That has no bearing on your soul on eternity? And do you think that the Christians in this room next to you, that they're here simply because they have nothing better to do on Sundays? That this is what we do here. This is just their substitute for football because they don't like football that much. If you're here today, remaining in unbelief, Jesus is telling you, wake up to your spiritual senses. Please, for your sake, connect the dots that you've been refusing to connect. This is the most urgent matter because your eternal destiny is at stake. Come to Him while you still can. And that's the point of these last few verses, beginning in verse 57. Jesus said, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Let's just say, why, why do you fail to make proper judgments about yourself? Why do you fail to assess the gravity of your own situation? And so verse 58, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now here, Jesus is using an earthly analogy of a lawsuit. To put it another way, let's say that you had committed a crime and that you were guilty of offense against another person. And the offended party accuses you and has decided to take you to court. And if you are in fact guilty beyond dispute, how arrogant and how foolish would it be for you to just casually wait until the court date? Just enjoy your time. Just go to the movies. Just do some fun stuff with a false sense of security and peace. I mean, don't you know what's going to happen when that day comes, don't you know the consequence of being pronounced guilty by the judge? If the offended party has announced that he is taking you to court, wouldn't you have some urgency to settle the matter personally before you even get to the court? Somehow, is there any way that I can make amends? Wouldn't you have some, some urgency to plead for forgiveness before you must stand trial and receive an official final verdict that is irreversible, that seals your condemnation? Why would you put off any possible recourse of settlement until you just have to stand before the judge who will indisputably declare you guilty and deliver you over to the bailiff who will escort you in handcuffs to prison, where you will satisfy the requirements of justice by serving the full measure of your sentence, down to every last penny of it. You see what Jesus is saying? In the same way, why would you put off being reconciled to God? Why do you think so lightly of Judgment Day when you will stand before Him guilty as hell in your sins? And I mean that literally. There will be no opportunity for settling the matter on that day. 
And you don't even know when that day will come. You don't know when you will breathe your last. And the demand of infinite perfect justice is that you will spend all eternity paying for every penny of your infinite debt before God. You will drink every drop of the infinite wrath of God. And that is why it is eternal judgment. Because an infinite sentence requires infinite time to pay. But listen, this is the good news of the gospel. God has made it possible for you to be justified, for you to be declared righteous in His sight, to be absolved of all guilt, for the matter to be settled, because Jesus Christ has come for guilty sinners like you and me. He came to pay every last penny of the debt of sin for all who confess their sin and trust in the sufficiency of what He has done. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry and that's why He suffered such agony on the cross. And if you're here this morning remaining in your sins, come to Jesus now. He is your only hope. Why would you put off your justification? It is freely given to you now. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Come and hide in Him while you still can. Enter into Him by faith. Seek refuge in Him before the flood comes and the doors of the ark are sealed forever. And when you come into Him by faith, you will know the unspeakable joy of being in Christ, the blessing and the peace of belonging to Him, having been united to Him by faith. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you will never have to fear the judgment of God ever again. That's the good news. And church, this really is the blessing of the gospel, isn't it? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because they have hidden themselves in the one who was sufficient to bear the full weight of their condemnation Christian cling to the gospel each day in your darkest hours remember this that Jesus even before going to the cross he he daily experienced the dread of the fear of condemnation so that you don't have to Ever. As, as he himself expressed, he was tormented by the thought of enduring the, the Father's anger and wrath. And it was all so that you might never have to fear it. That you might never have to be afraid of the Father's anger. But only to enjoy unchanging peace with God. Jesus was plunged baptized under the outpouring of divine judgment, drowning in the horrors of it, so that you and I as believers might now have divine love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. Thank God for this good news. And may the Lord strengthen your faith to believe this more and to rejoice in this more. And to walk in this more. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the glorious plan of salvation which you planned in eternity. For that which you manifested at your proper appointed time in sending your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might bear the weight of the law for us and that we might be found secure in him. Lord, you are a hiding place for us. And for that, we praise you. And we thank you for giving to us this sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which you remind us of the sufficiency of what Christ has done to atone for our sins. And we ask now that you would take these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup, that you would consecrate it for the holy purpose of ministering to us in so visibly and tangibly a way that we might be assured and confirmed of the precious truth of the gospel. Prepare our hearts to receive it by faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.